Hello everyone and welcome. This is Molly Rowan Leach and it's an honor to host the series that's ongoing every Thursday, 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, Restorative Justice on the Rise, sponsored by the Peace Alliance. We're pleased to host this as a webcast, streaming live worldwide, as well as through telecouncil access. You can dial in or use your Skype as a telephone to access us every week. We hope you'll check out our website at dopeace.us for all archives from our extraordinary body of guest speakers, as well as resources and other related information regarding restorative justice and peacebuilding efforts on the ground. The archive that you're about to listen to features an extraordinary conversation that we had on April 11, 2013, with Sunny Schwartz. She's the author of the extraordinary book, and best-selling book, that is, Dreams from the Monster Factory, a tale of prison, redemption, and one woman's fight to restore justice to all. She founded the Resolve to Stop the Violence Project, RSVP, and for more about her work, you can go to sunnyschwartz.com. That's S-U-N-N-Y schwartz.com. Again, for more information about this series, you can go to dopeace.us, click on the Restorative Justice tab, which is on the upper right-hand column of the website, to find resources and upcoming guests, as well as all archives. Enjoy this conversation we had with Sunny Schwartz, and see you in the near future. Good evening, everyone. This is Molly Rowan Leach, and I am your host for this ongoing series sponsored by the Peace Alliance, Restorative Justice on the Rise. And you are an active participant in this weekly offering free of charge. We hope to offer a platform for education, connection, for dialogue, and for discovery as uh, restorative justice truly is on the rise, not only in the United States, but in our world. So such a warm welcome to you. If it's your first time joining us tonight, you might be interested to know that we have a website hub where we feature archives from all of our guest speakers. Some of them are globally renowned, and even those doing grassroots work deserve the same recognition for there are so many people doing such powerful work in this field right now and have been for many of them for decades. So please check out the Restorative Justice on the Web, uh, Restorative Justice on the Rise website which is at dopeace.us and then click over to the um, Restorative Justice tab and there's a menu there that also features some resources, events, such as the upcoming conference in Toledo, Ohio, as well as the one that's going to be held just in the next month here in Colorado Springs, Colorado, the Summit for Restorative Justice. So before we get to welcoming our extremely extraordinary guest speaker tonight, just a few words of how we roll with uh, our council. If you have a question or if you're tuning in from the webcast which is accessible worldwide and it's a new feature that we have implemented for this series, you can submit your question on the webcast via the, the box that prompts you to do so and we'll be looking at those and trying to do the best we can to keep up with questions. Now if you're live with us in the conference room here, just press 1 on your telephone keypad. If you're Skyping in, press 1, that's the same. And we will be opening it up um, as soon as, as about the half hour comes around. We also have at the Peace Alliance a new program here in Colorado that is uh, a sort of pilot project that's uh, working with people on the ground towards raising awareness of what restorative justice is, helping people to connect and to speak um, to their legislators 
surrounding a bill that's just about up for passage here in Colorado called the Restorative Justice Pilot Project. That's House Bill 13-1254. You can go to thepeacealliance.org backslash RJ Action if you'd like to participate. If you're a Colorado resident, even if you're not, and you're interested in what's happening here in Colorado, um, advocating for restorative justice. And the good news is, knock on wood, that it looks like this bill is going to probably be in safe passage. It's moving along and it's getting quite a bit of support, but your support is still needed. So if you're in Colorado, you'd like to write your legislators, please do so by going to thepeacealliance.org backslash rjaction. So without further ado tonight, it's just an extraordinary honor and a great pleasure um, to introduce to you, and many of you probably already know her very well, the incredible Sunny Schwartz. Now Sunny, besides being the author of the best-selling book, Dreams from the Monster Factory, is also the founder of RSVP, Resolve, Resolve to Stop the Violence Programming. She's based out of San Francisco Bay Area, but she's created ripples worldwide. She's a nationally recognized expert in criminal justice reform, and she has 30 years of frontline experience, and, and that's absolutely true. Frontline is exactly it. She's been a lawyer, advocate, and consultant combined, and she spent her career navigating all levels of the system and pioneering new policy initiatives for prisoners' programs. If you haven't read Dreams from the Monster Factory, it's a must-read for anyone who'd like to see evidence of the possible in action. Now you can find out more about Sunny at sunnyschwartz.com. You also uh, might like to see the Resolve to Stop the Violence uh, proje project page, which is Resolve to Stop the Violence SF, that's as in San Francisco.org. She also has been featured on programs such as the Oprah Winfrey Show. She's um, been honored by the uh, Innovations in Government Award from the Kennedy School of Government of Harvard University and the Ash Institute with the prestigious Oscars in Government Innova Innovations Award. Um, she's also been on the Discovery Channel, PBS, Larry King Live, and just simply is an authentic pioneer um, offering such powerful service and, and uh, manifest implementation in this field. So without further ado, Sunny, it is a great pleasure to have you with us tonight. Welcome. Well, Molly, my goodness, thank you. What a pleasure to be with you all. Well, let's, uh, let's start out the conversation tonight with, um, I know maybe some people haven't read the book yet, but in, in the book you provide such a profound and moving story of your own life that informed how you got into this field. And if you would, just uh, share about what do you think are the primary reasons and motivations for the work that, that you began in restorative justice and in um, implementing such... Uh, what probably were at the time, um, let's just say, people people weren't um, at all probably thinking that this could ever be possible. What you've pulled off and others, of course, in the San Francisco uh, law enforcement system. Yeah, uh, if anybody in my old neighborhood, when I, I was born and raised on the south side of Chicago, if they thought I'd be working in law enforcement, they would they would uh, fall off their chair. Because at that time in the 60s and early 70s, um, I, there's no coincidence why we do the things we do. And um, most of my um, childhood and young adult was on the south side of Chicago. And, and probably at that time, uh, unbeknownst to me, because in the Chicago public schools in the 60s, they didn't know from learning disabilities or differences. And I'm sure I had one. I was placed always in the, quote, dummy classes, unquote, 
and enormous amount of shame and embarrassment as a result. And um, some of my, a lot of my friends were in the honor classes, and I, I would hide the fact that I was in the remedial reading classes, and and um, you know, no one really took the time at that t- uh, to really do investigation of why kids learn in different ways and consequently they tracked us and and stayed that way for a long time and I for whatever reason instead of uh, inter- well I'm, I internalized it I'm sure as well I know I did but I, I, I acted out a lot and I was a sneeze away from uh, being on the other side of the, the bars um, a lot of the um, I would say a good amount probably well about a quarter of the kids in my class all of a sudden they were plucked away nobody knew why until later on we found out they were runaways or they went to juvenile hall so it was very personal I always even though I was in the remedial reading classes most of my uh, uh, schooling um, elementary and in high school I always had this secret desire, and it was secret because it would have been laughable. I could barely uh, graduate. I had this secret desire to become a lawyer. And, um, you know, it was just this visceral feeling of the injustice of how kids were treated and the haves and the have-nots. And I never really shared that until later on when I moved to Tucson, Arizona in 1972. Didn't go to college. I went to a couple community colleges, and there was one class that I um, took called Women in Contemporary Society at Pima Community College and and heard about this law school that you didn't have to have a, a college degree and oh my god the the light bulbs and the fantasy and the dreams really took off and I have to tell you um, it really I had this dream but it was I really struggled mightily with uh, fundamental uh, uh, sentence structure and and anything, any test taking, and um, but I I went for it and I applied to a school in in San Francisco called New College of California School of Law. And my then partner really, she virtually wrote my application. To tell you the truth, I I talked it out and and she wrote it and um, I you know surprisingly I got an interview and I uh, <clears throat> went out to. Um, San Francisco, this is 19, about 1979, and they looked at my transcripts and they looked at uh, my LSAT scores, which were really probably a record-breaking low, and they said, you know, we really want to encourage folks who would tr- not uh, make, you know, traditionally fit the bill, but you're really going to, we don't want to, I remember the dean at that time, and I don't blame her for that. She said, "You know, son, it would be it would almost be unethical for us to take your uh, your money because your LSATs are low. You're great. You know, you didn't go to college. You can you barely got out of high school." But long story short, they allowed me in uh, provisionally to a four-year law school because I also had to work through you know put myself through law school. And I was I always just wanted to work in criminal justice because probably, as you asked originally, because of it was personal. You know, I felt the sense of injustice growing up, both personally with not not having people taking the time in our school to really work with us as students, and um, so there was this uh, very burning desire to to be an advocate you know, an advocate for myself and an advocate for others. So I got into law school, and um, I had an opportunity. I heard about this um, prisoner legal service job and through the San Francisco Sheriff's Department. Now i got to tell folks, the San Francisco Sheriff's Department, so this is 1980. I, w- I went to law school from 1980 to 1984. And th- why the Sheriff's Department and how do they have this program called prisoner legal service where you advocate and provide a variety of legal um, advocacy for incarcerated folks. There was a man by the name of Michael Hennessy that folks may he's na- talk about nationally known. Um, this was a, a man who who was a civil libertarian himself, a lawyer himself, and ran a grassroots campaign and, and surprisingly became the sheriff in 1980. I heard about this guy. I heard about this guy actually suing other sheriff's departments for 
unfair conditions. And he became the sheriff. And I said, wow, this is a place I really, it just, it just fell into place. So I had to work anyway, and I wanted to work in the legal community. And um, so I started working as a prisoner legal service um, intern, doing things for incarcerated people from child custody, everything except for their actually underlying criminal case where their defense attorney, public defender, would take care of that. So I, I was trained for four years as a in law intern, and um, I always thought I would be a kick-butt defense attorney. But um, things really changed um, when I met one uh, client who was incarcerated, probably this is like circa 1982. And um, I met this man that I call Fred in my book, and I talk very frank and very painfully about Fred. I Let me back up a little bit. When I walk the... the the main line in maximum security for the first time, I was just horrified. Uh, I was horrified by the conditions. I was horrified by um, how people were treated, how some of them, the, the cat calls and the, the comments as a woman walking down main line, as we call, which is the main corridor of maximum security. But I knew when I looked around, I, I soon thereafter, you know, hence the name of my book, I, I, we we, colleagues and I were talking, saying this is a monster factory. This is a perpetrator factory. And I knew I wanted to get as many people out because I saw how sick it was and I saw that people actually got sicker uh, upon release than certainly far cry from better. So I wanted to do that. I wanted to do, you know, get as many people out as much as possible. Until I met this guy, as I come in full circle again, named Fred Johnson, I call in my book. And um, I don't know how much, if, can I share that story, Molly? Do you mind? Please do. Absolutely. Okay. So, um, which really is apropos to restorative justice. I mean, this, this is the foundation of what propelled me um, to where the work I've been doing you know, of late in the last 20 years. So Fred Johnson, um, it was, um, I'll paraphrase and, 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 you know, truncate the story, but um, Fred Johnson, it was, I, I'll never forget it, it was uh, a late Friday afternoon, quitting time. And at that time, interns and uh, were taken to the tier, and I chose to work on the actual tier, and the tier, for those who may not know, you know, it's a long corridor, it's kind of like out of the movies, with individual bars, and, and at that time there was jail overcrowding, um, and the, the, um, they were like probably double bunked, so there was approximately 70 men on this tier, and um, they would instead of going and individ interviewing an individual um, in an interview room that was a long way away, I would go up on the tier and people would line up and I would interview them to see what issues and how I can help. So it was, you're locked on the tier and it's, it's really uh, kind of survival of the fittest of sorts where um, I was probably on the tier that day of about six to seven hours and I was Friday, and I wanted to get the heck out to tell you the truth. And this one man, who uh, who was uh, really agitated, said, "I really need to talk to you." And I basically said, "Hey, it's got to wait till Monday." And he said, "It can't wait till Monday." And he was extremely hyper and really, as I said, agitated. And he just unloaded this confession on me, which was um, the following. I've been in here for a year. I'm getting out in two weeks. I'm a very sick man. I'm in here for a child molestation case, and I promise you I will do it again. As a matter of fact, I have a specific victim in mind. This woman rents a, uh, a room in my house, and she has a little girl, and I promise you I will do it again. Well, that just put me in a state of, panic and agitation myself, and I obviously I could not ignore it. 
so in his own quite sick way, he was screaming for help. And um, now I wasn't a, a lawyer at that time, so I didn't have attorney-client privilege. But I prided myself on being an advocate and, you know, really um, doing everything I can to help people and get people out. Well, this Fred's confession, you know, completely turned things around for me and uh, interrupted my career trajectory, to say the least. So what I proceeded to do, um, he was getting out in two weeks, so the clock was ticking, and I, you know, visually saw this little girl, and I, I went to the sheriff immediately. He was disgusted. He suggested I went to the, go to the uh, presiding judge. I went to him. He was disgusted. Um, the judge ended up recusing himself. He suggested I go to the DA. I went to the DA. DA was disgusted. Everyone was disgusted. I went to his public defender, his defense attorney, and she, Susan, I'll never forget, was disgusted and said, this guy is really a, very creepy. It really makes me sick to hear this. But, Sonny, there is nothing I can do about it, and if you mess with him or mess with his release, I will kick and scream in court. And Susan, you know, this is not to blame Susan. She was doing her job. And um, I just kept thinking at that time, what about this little girl? Whose job was it to take care of this little girl, look out for her or the community and defense in the best sense of the word? God forbid if he did that again, you know, he would end up doing harder time and possibly getting killed himself in jail because child molesters are on the on the hit list for, you know, within the jail prison world. But no one was doing anything. And... Um, at that time, as I, you know, rehabilitation was a far cry from most jails and prisons, let alone the concept of restorative justice wasn't even in the atmosphere. But I did some research. I heard of a, a place, a locked-in treatment place. I wasn't advocating for him to stay in prison. I want, you know, in my raw way, I wanted him to get help. So I did some research. Southern California had one locked-in treatment for sex offenders, and lo and behold, I was subpoenaed and called to court. And it was a real paradigm shift for me. There I was going to court every, almost every other day trying to get people out, and here I'm coming to court to testify against, so-called against this man, and trying to keep him from going out. And I had no issues with that, but it was, it was, um, it was challenging in a different way because, you know, those of us who were pride ourselves on being defense attorneys, we would do anything for our clients to, to, to liberate and get them free. But um, even though it wasn't, um, I knew it was the right thing to tell the truth and try to get this man help. Um, it was, I knew that no one's going to win from this situation. So I testified in court. Fred was yelling in court saying I was making things up, the defense attorney. In fact, Susan, the defense attorney, she passed the case to somebody else. The judge, who happened to be a, a, a real law and order judge who I would usually cringe trying to go in front of him, and I was relieved for once I had a law and order judge, but he didn't know what to do either. So the what happened was, painfully, was um, the judge looked at me and said, well, Ms. Schwartz, you got us all in here. What do you expect us to do? And I I said, well, I just I said I heard about this program. I think this man is screaming for help, and we have an obligation. And I think he should be um, he should go to this locked-in treatment for sex offenders. And the judge said I can't order that. And and um, he said, well, what I'll do is extend his probation from three years to five, <clears throat> and uh, he'll come in front of me every month for um, progress reports. Well, unfortunately, I was right. Well, in the meantime, I should, you know, say we were able to warn um, this mother and child with this child, and she got the heck out of there. But Fred was released, and I think within it was six months, he did in fact reoffend. I believe it was a six-year-old girl from uh, Nicaragua, and ended up back in Atascadero, which is for the criminally insane, and. It, Folks, after that, it was I. I couldn't do it. I, I did not want to continue um, working in a system that was filled with despair and decay, and 
and just kind of a, a as I said, you know, I write about a monster factory and and so I um that really as I said changed my uh, career trajectory and um I continued to work in the sheriff's department and as the sheriff's attorney and then I went out and practiced um in the uh private sector representing workers, terminated workers. And then Sheriff Hennessy, uh, about a year and a half, two years later, asked me if I would really consider coming back because they were building yet another jail, but he didn't want it to be a warehouse or a factory. He wanted it to be a program facility, and he needed uh, a program administrator, director, to design and implement and direct programs. I was very reluctant, but given um, the particular people who he assigned to run the jail, really was intriguing and really exciting. It was a, a friend of mine who, an old friend who I worked uh, with during my law school days was um, actually an ex-offender himself. And he was the director of the whole facility, which was like, and like a, he was basically the warden of the facility, but this was a county jail. And they really talked about having robust programs having sworn staff, deputized staff, as well as civilian teachers working shoulder to shoulder to to um, release people more responsibly and create a humane jail, which seems paradoxical. But um, I knew the man, Michael Markham, his name is, I knew him very well. I knew the lieutenants who were hand-chosen to run this jail, and I said, wow, count me in. This was a, This was an opportunity to be a defense attorney in a completely different way. So we designed so many programs that responded to people's struggles and deficiencies. You know, the demographics of who's in jail, as many folks may know, but just in case, keep this, you know, real and in context, um, we interviewed 362 men and women and um, tested education tests. And the demographics are exactly what we thought, painful as it is, but it's the reality that... Uh, 75% were high school dropouts, hence the, the need to have uh, education. Uh, also, 80% had an ad, average reading level from fourth to sixth grade. 90% disclosed, self-disclosed that they were addicts or, uh, or alcoholics or both. 80% um, reported that they were victims of child sexual and or physical trauma. 90% reported they never held a legal job for a year, and about 80%, 80 to 85% were parents of at least two kids, custodial or non-custodial. So this all begged programs, and that's what we design, education, parenting, job preparedness, um, groups for um, sexual uh, assault survivors, um, domestic violence classes. But we kept seeing people still coming back. It was really pockets of civility. We really were working so well together, and and really had, most of the people who worked there had great fire, good fire in their belly to for public interest work. But people kept coming back, and it was it was painful. We started a therapeutic community for substance abusing women called the Sister Project. That seem to have an impact on recidivism, um, albeit not dramatic, but it was a, um, we had UCSF do an evaluation, about 15% reduction. Um, that's 15, that's a lot, um, even though it doesn't sound dramatic. That's, you know, as we have, as we say in our business, you impact one person, you impact a generation, and, and I know that, that to be uh, true, not just this Pollyanna statement. Um, so coming back, coming almost full circle to restorative justice, so this is about 19, mid, I went back in 1990, we developed these um, heartening, beginning successful programs in about 1995, still not satisfied with the recidivism rate overall. I happened to be at a conference in Minnesota and was sitting with a colleague at lunch and we were comparing notes of the different workshops we attended and she attended this workshop called Restorative Justice, led by the pioneer now that I, we know, Kay Prentiss. And um, I said, what the heck is Restorative Justice? She hands me this pamphlet, and I'll, you know, uh, it was like yesterday where um, 
I remember looking at the cover and it says, restorative justice recognizes that crime hurts everyone, victim, offender, community, and it creates an obligation to make things right. And it was the, that light bulb moment where I went, my God, this is, this is it. This is, this is because personally, you know, professionally, even though we were making strides and creating a, a relatively humane environment in this particular program facility jail, you know, it, it, it still was tough because you, say, you saw the same people coming back and, frankly, with the same sorry excuses. And restorative justice, when I went on to continue reading that pamphlet where it said the main principles is offender accountability, the voice of the, the victim, and community involvement to heal the harm caused by crime, that, was, that just resonated in me personally and it resonated in me professionally. So um, I literally well, – uh, yeah, go ahead. Honey, I just want to um, come in here for a moment and welcome anybody who's just now joining us. We're talking with the incredible Sunny Schwartz. She's the author of the best-selling book, Dreams from the Monster Factory. She's devoted the last 30 years of her life and beyond to implementing programs that at first glance back then probably seemed like um, incredible obstacles and impossible within a very broken criminal justice system. And in particular, you're in San Francisco at the Sheriff's Department. That, that was the origination of where her work began and other related work that I'd love to get into with you, Sunny. Um, for more about Sunny's work, please visit SunnySchwartz.com. That's S-U-N-N-Y. S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z dot com. And also make sure to check out the book, Dreams from the Monster Factory. Um, it's uh, subtitled, A Tale of Prison, Redemption, and One Woman's Fight to Restore Justice to All. It's a profound story that includes a, a lot of details about your journey um, coming into the system and the extraordinary circumstances that were very ripe for implementing a groundbreaking program, the first of its kind in the United States. And so in the second half of the, of the uh, council tonight, I'd love for you um, participants to press one on your keypad if you'd like to ask a question throughout the rest of the half an hour tonight to Sunny or if you'd like to make a comment. If you're on the webcast, make sure you submit it through the prompter there if you have one. So um, Sunny, in, in the book, um, James Gilligan, who is a very well-known and well-respected medical doctor um, and New York University professor, speaks about the, the numbers. And a, a lot of the threads in our, our ongoing councils here are about our need for numbers, statistics, and evidence. And you've already spoken to quite a bit of that already tonight. But what he says here, uh, I just love because it really makes it um, simple and grounded. And he's, he's talking about the, the evaluation um, and cost-benefit analysis of your program. Um, he says, the program was actually saving the taxpayers $4 for every dollar spent on it because the program was so successful in lowering the rate of reincarceration. The cost of incarceration, even in the most pared down jails and prisons, is so great. He says, as they say quite correctly, a year in jail costs as much as a year in Yale. That the only question we should be asking is not, can we afford programs such as this, but rather, can we afford not to have programs such as this? So. Um, I think probably a lot of us are, 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 are thinking and wondering, so you did it, um, how can we do this? And what, yeah. what are the challenges and what are the things that people can, can gain from our conversation tonight if they feel like, all right, Sunny's done it, she's uh, pioneered this program, now, now what? What are the, what are the conditions that, that we can create in our own communities within the, the systems? so that uh, we can, can hopefully introduce a program like yours? Yeah, that's an important question, and it's not an easy one to answer. Um, 
you know, when we create a Dr. Gilligan's um, evaluation was dramatic. Um, you know, we have a saying that the vast majority of, of violence is learned and it can be unlearned. And Dr. Gilligan's evaluation thankfully validated that. Um, it didn't have, uh, RSVP didn't have, uh, Resolve the South of Violence didn't have a dramatic uh, impact on overall recidivism, but it had a very dramatic impact on violent rearrests. So that tells us, you know, that's the validation that given the right environment, people absolutely can change. And I'm here to testify the people are hungry to change. Um, and 80% of the men in our program, violent men in our program, compared to violent men in general population, have, uh, were less likely to be rearrested on violence. And that's a dramatic um, um, impact. Um, also, uh, in jail, uh, ironically, a lot of the, at first when we designed, we wanted to put 62 violent offenders under an, in an open dormitory, and some of the, the Deputy Sheriff's Association were um, very concerned thinking it would compromise officer safety because you, it defies conventional wisdom. You just don't put 62 violent offenders in, under one roof. Um, you spread people out because uh, the conventional wisdom is that you'll have a riot on your hands. But um, I'm happy to report that not only Dr. Gilligan's um, evaluation um, validates the behavior change, but including uh, it was the safest jail to work in, as, as what, live in and work in, because that same dormitory that the year before RSVP was created, there were over 30 fights. Um, in RSVP, in 15 years of existence, there have been about maybe three fights and nothing legal, uh, lethal. So that's a very dramatic reduction in, in, in jail violence as well. How can other counties and communities do what we did? Well, what we did was not rocket science. It was, it was gutsy, without a doubt. What we're talking about is very fundamental. Uh, it's a fundamental initiative. Yes, it was nice to win an Innovations in Government Award, but... You're talking about uh, concepts and initiatives and values and principles that are so basic. I, may, may I venture to say biblical, First Nations. I mean, it goes way back. You hurt someone, you take responsibility, give back, and you have a community that's invested in your success and your, your dignity and humanity as well as those who have been harmed. So if it's so successful, why isn't this the rule instead of the exception? I don't have a real good answer for it except for a couple things. Leadership is critical. You have to have people who have the moxie and belief that what we're doing <clears throat> excuse me, is important. And it's important for not only the, the incarcerated people, it's equally important, if not even more so, for would-be victims and our community um, as well at large. Um, I think there's a perception still, even in San Francisco, it wasn't easy to do this. Our sheriff, too, who was a very progressive guy, was really very reluctant. He says this publicly. He said, when Sonny first came to me with this idea, I thought she was crazy. Um, because, you, it, as I said, it defies conventional wisdom. Um, Folks, we've had hundreds of jurisdictions and community members come to sit in and um, view, observe RSVP, and very few have um, replicated. Westchester County has, ironically, um, folks internationally. Uh, Singapore, partial uh, RSVP, uh, New Zealand, Poland, um, Texas uh, is looking at it, and I think they replicated some, but not not as robust. Um, I think it has to do, you know, the communities um, organizing, um, being willing to work to get trained in restorative justice um, conferencing, to work with businesses, the faith-based community. Um, when we started RSVP. We had 40 very strange bedfellows at the table, and I mean that in the warmest way. We had housewives from Pleasanton, which is a suburb of San Francisco, we sitting next to former gang members. We had an Orthodox rabbi and a Baptist minister and atheists and Buddhists sitting next to deputy sheriffs, victims of the most horrific crime. Every stakeholder 
coming together to build a program that had one mission, how to stop violence in our homes and our community. And Mm -hmm. um, it was very personal to everybody, too. And so getting those folks together who normally wouldn't give each other on the face of it the time of day, and I think that that was key to the success of having all the stakeholders. And what I mean by that are people who are impacted by this issue. And um, we we really feel like there's hardly any degree of separation when it comes to violence and other crime. And... um, it, it, so we worked for 18 months to cr- to create this curriculum, and we launched it in 1997, and it's still going strong, thankfully. So I think organizing in the community, I think, you know, making, you know, challenging our elected officials and those who are in a position of power and authority and in, in criminal justice. Um, I don't have a pat answer. I wish I had a formula that would make it really uh, set it off, um, but I don't. But those are some of my thoughts. Thank you. And it, it, as you convey, it's it's certainly a process that doesn't have, have easy answers and blanket solutions given the nature probably of each particular incident and circumstance. We obviously know that no two conflicts are the same, no two crimes are the same. They all involve uh, a great variety of people from a wide variety of backgrounds, and um, so responding appropriately takes uh, a real um, kind of Aikido move, it seems, in, in working with what's present. I'd, I'd like to go to one of our council members who is, I think, wanting to ask a question or make a comment. Welcome, Don. You're live. Well, Don, you still want to ask a question. You're live. Okay. I'm going to go ahead and, and field a question from our webcast while we're at it then. Um, we have some, some good questions. Daryl, thank you for your question tonight. You're asking, can prisoners systematically victimized by a system which degrades them and deprives them of responsibility really face the challenge of restorative outreach towards their victims? Yeah. Thank you, Jared. Good question. Yeah, yeah, good question. Um, I think it has to, you know, what we were about was creating an environment that um, fostered introspection and invested in people's success. And I think it takes a very rare person to do it in an isolated incident uh, situation. I mean, we're all creatures of our environment, and you're right. It's inherently, for 150 years, we've been locking people up in the most inhumane, degrading environments. You know, I worked for for law enforcement and 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 in a jail that I spent most of my career and still do indicting, and I and I'm very frank about that. Um, I think it takes a very rare person to do it in an isolated, uh, without an environment that uh, supports that. Um, I, in my travels since 1980, I have seen such people, but they're the exception to the rule. Conversely, given the opportunity, and that was the part that just um, really helped establish trust and credibility, particularly among the 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 deputy sheriffs who are trained to look at prisoners as the enemy, um, when we created that environment that was based on people's dignity and humanity, people really did rise to the occasion. And so, you know, the question is, can someone change an inherently inhumane system on its own? I'd say that that, that's rare. But um, restorative justice, you know, the whole definition that I read in 1995 that I still is my mantra it it creates an obligation to make it right and what is that what does it mean to make it right it means underscoring everybody's humanity the prisoner the one who offended the one who's been harmed and us the community who work real hard to uh, make ends meet and pay you know those jails and prisons are not those you know, it's not the Department of Correction, it's us, the taxpayer, and it's, it's our, I think it's our obligation to insist 
on having a system that's not based on 70% of failure, but 70% of success. And um, that success has to come from humane treatment and responsive programming that uh, allow people to be self-sufficient. What do you say to the critics of restorative justice who uh, that very claim um, and strong point of, of implementing restorative systems, of, of bringing it back to a humane template, one that recognizes, as, you know, you, you, you've been pointing to the, the title of the book um, because, because it's a, a very poignant foundation for, for this whole conversation. Um, dreams from the monster factory. So you, you've talked about monster factory. Now you also point to the dreams and that that was one of the things that um, really was a springboard for, for what you were recognizing, a basic concept of what was being forgotten. But, so why is that criticized? Why are, we, why are we thinking that restorative justice, at least critics of it, and a cult, this cultural perhaps stigmatization that's still present, um, why would it be considered soft or, or wrong to support the dreams even of offenders? Well, it, it still is. You know, uh, the it, people are still elected officials are still baited on being soft on crime, and that that concept that was so co-opted. You know, I I think and it's converse. I think programs that we created is really tough on crime. You ask any uh, prisoner um, originally um, where they went. They just want to do their time versus looking themselves in the mirror to see what what they have done and what was done to them. That's tough. <laughs> That's really tough. So I think the whole concept of soft and tough on crime has really been co-opted. Like patriotism, is, the concept of patriotism has been co-opted. I think there's very p big parallels to that. Um, you know, what I do, and, and if I did, did my job right with writing it, in part, those who, you know, I, I wanted, when we wrote the book, and my co-writer co and I, we really, I made sure not to use concepts even though it's true, prison industrial complex, or or certain kinds of concepts that would um, just pigeonhole things. I wrote a book because I wanted those who never been in a jail or had preconceived notions or believe that they want to lock them up and throw away the key to come inside and see what I've seen for the last several decades. Because when I do bring people in, and I share this in my book, I sit on the board of the Giants Community Fund here in the Major League Ball, uh, Ball Club, and I sit on it because the Giants do a lot of good community work, and I'm, I'm on their violence prevention committee. And there was a venture capitalist, who, a colleague board member, who said, you know what, Sonny, I have listened to you for years about the work and your initiatives, and, you know, I like you, I respect you, but you know what, I don't give a you-know-what about the people behind the walls and bars. Why should I care? I work hard. I send my kids to school. I'm doing the best I can. Why should I care about those people? And I said to him, Steve, you know what? Instead of you know, debating him, I said, hey, if you have a few hours one day, let me know and I'll show you why. Without commentary, without you know, anything else, um, about six months or almost a year later, he called me up. He said, you know, it's stuck in my mind. I, I have that few hours. So we made a date. I took him to the Monster Factory, the old traditional jail. And then I took him to the program facility where RSVP is. I couldn't get him out. It wasn't a couple hours. I think we got out about four hours later. He was sitting in a group with the guys. I couldn't get him out. He was blown away. He saw on so many levels what a travesty the traditional way of approaching crime and punishment he saw the wasted taxpayers' money. He saw the human decay. And this is a man who was, you know, I wouldn't say right-wing conservative, but definitely not, you know, open-hearted to the work that we've been doing. And it blew his mind, and he's a champion to this day. Helps raise money for us. Um, he wants to uh, help us open up a, a social enterprise for folks coming out to learn um, business and the trades. And um, so what I say to them is, what's working now? 
we spend, and depending on the jurisdiction, you know, I just give them the facts. You know, the truth is crazier than fiction. That we spend anywhere from forty to eighty-five thousand dollars to house one prisoner for one year, with a seventy percent, depending on the jurisdiction, seventy to seventy-five, sometimes higher, failure recidivism rate. That's a seventy to seventy-five percent failure rate. So you tell me. Until we can find a pill to give people to have them stop hurting themselves and others, this is our attempt mm. to bring some sanity to our communities. That's one of the things that I I so respect about your work, Sunny, is that you um, you speak to a very broad um, constituency of of people from all different backgrounds, Democrats, Republicans people who are in every corner of our society, and your message is bridged to them. I, I see you as that. And I also see one of uh, the keys for you being that you, you, have a you established a relationship by the very nature of, of your path in life um, that was re perhaps relational and able to um, like transmit some proof and you know no nonsense with the people that you were directly working with. So yeah. um, I just acknowledge that. And um, I also would like to take another question from our webcast. We have some good questions tonight. Um, let's see. This one is from Don, and um, Don asks. Like he says, I'm a, a third-year law student. What can I do to get involved as a law student in the San Francisco Bay Area and mark out a career path in this area? Thank you, Don, for that question. All right. Um, yeah, good question. I've had the good fortune of speaking to um, numerous law schools in the, the Bay Area and also back east. And um, there's so many things. You know, I'm a lawyer by trade. I, I um, I am licensed, and I haven't practiced in the traditional way in, in 25 years, probably. Um, no regrets on that. I keep my bar card still current because, God forbid, if someone needs me to get them out or something, I, I, I keep that going. Um, but um, there's so many things you can do. You can, you know, you, it's, it's really hard, even to this day, to infuse you know, there are specialty courts right now. There's drug court, there's a veterans courts, there's domestic violence courts, and they're doing so much um, more comprehensive work. We have a behavioral health court in San Francisco, and lawyers both on the defense and the DA. If, you, if Don wanted to choose one of those areas, and I know in, in San Francisco they're really trying to make some strides and doing things a little bit different. It's still the same us-them situation. But certain specialty courts, you know, advocates, legal folks, are certainly needed. You know, um, there's other things that you can do. I mean, you can, you know, work um, legally in policy. And the attorney general's office in California, I know, they're keenly interested in doing some um, prison reform in their own right. Kamala Harris is the attorney general, and she, even even though she comes from a prosecutorial background, she's very committed to doing public interest law as well. Um, there's um, there's a lot of uh, you know certainly defense. There's certainly education. Um, you can use your legal uh, education to do uh, reforming um, youth guidance centers. You know, I'm just thinking out loud with you about it. Um, I think restorative justice is is as you said, it's becoming more it's it's becoming more and more of a, a peaceful and good force. Um, back in the day, it was more like, what? Uh, never the twain shall meet. Victims and offenders are never to come together in any way, shape, or form. And now people are seeing the, not only the worth, but the, um, the, the call to action to do things different. Even the most conservative people are saying, you know what, you're right. We are not winning the war on drugs. That was a fallacy to begin with, them. but now people are are really uh, becoming a little bit more accountable about it. It's baby steps. It's not good enough, but there's more and more of a context to to create more programs and more initiatives on that. 
Well, Sunny, I want um, on that note, I'd, I'd, I want I don't want to miss um, covering just a really what seems to be at least a really important point. Uh, I know in Colorado, I mentioned earlier that that the Peace Alliance is working with uh, Representative Pete Lee and um, Longmont Community Justice Partnership, as well as Officer Greg Ruprecht from the Longmont Police Department, to advocate for House Bill. 13-1254, again, the Restorative Justice Pilot Project, which would be, if it passes, the second bill into law in the state of Colorado, supporting, um, in this case, youth programming in two more districts and um, empirical evidential uh, statistical tracking. Um, my question, though, is uh, one of the, the most strong points um, of argument or criticism or fear perhaps about this bill was that the, the victim would have a loss of safety per se, a loss of, of being the central focus of the, um, of the process. And I wonder if you could speak about that because I know that you state, of course, on your website and, and in just in your work in general, that uh, the victim is in restorative justice. If it's if it's uh, the conditions are properly created, the victim is central to the process. So, how does that? How would you speak to the fears of of those who might be wondering? Well, um, we're afraid to pass this bill because we're afraid that the victim will lose uh, the central focus. Yeah, I think I think that's a legitimate concern, frankly. Um, you know, we, we wanted to make sure, we, you know, we we didn't we had good gut instincts, but we really didn't know what we were doing back in the day when we created RSVP. We used Kay Prentice's um, work and handout as the, kind of the blueprint. And again, as I said, those three components are essential: offender accountability. On a, unequivocal authentic accountability, the voice and service of victims and community involvement to heal the harm. And that's why we made sure to have RSVP be victim-driven and have victims up front and center to talk about what they needed and how they see. I mean, we had, as I share in my book, um, this woman, Jean O'Hara, may she rest in peace, she just passed away a couple of years ago. She was uh, a senior back then, and uh, experienced the most horrific violence, uh, where her daughter and grandson were brutally murdered. And she was a pro-death penalty, three strikes you're out proponent. And we invited her, and it was risky because we knew that her ideology may not mix with some of other others, myself included, but. It was so important from a practical point of view as well as a, a respectful humanitarian point of view to keep that voice, the cry of the victims, up front and center. Because we traditionally have always thought, oh, boy, the victim rights people just want to lock people up and, and just retribution. Well, that's not true. What Jean wanted, or only what she wanted, besides bringing her loved ones back, which was impossible, was to, to hear the unequivocal accountability and apology. I mean, it's it's not that simple, but it, it it's that basic. And she, as well as a few other um, mothers of murdered children came, and they kind of first sat there with their arms crossed looking around saying, what the heck is this, you know? But soon when they found out, when, we, when we, you talk about accountability, and I'm not talking about kneel on pebbles and, and shame. I'm talking about having the courage and the humanity to look yourself in the eye and say, my God, what have I done? And I deserve better. And my loved ones deserve better. And my community deserves better. And having programs that, that nurture that. And when you talk about that and you see and hear and feel that unequivocal apology, uh, you know, accountability, even the most pained, retributive person tends to you know, exhale a little because that's what people want. I'm saying, you know, categorically. So I think there's some concerns. I think that the survivors need to be up front and center with any bill and any initiative when it comes to restorative justice to talk about, to really hear 
um, mm-hmm. what's important to them. And I think sometimes, you know, there's. I was just right before I was out at our jails, and I'm going to help a teacher co-teach um, a restorative justice class for incarcerated people. And we were talking about different levels of restorative justice. And there's a lot of programs out there that call themselves restorative justice, and they're not. And that's mm-hmm. not an indictment. It's. I think it's so important. There's rehabilitation programs, and those are incredibly important and heroic in its mm-hmm. own right. But if you don't have the voice of the victim and service to those survivors, and if you don't have accountability, they're right. not restorative. And I think that's real important, right. um, you know, because people have been, you know, the good news is restorative justice is more and more well-known. The not-so-good news is that it's used or mis- misstated. So, right. I, you know, in that I, sense, Molly, having the victim up front and center and hearing that voice and that cry and that call to action for the service of those who've been harmed is so critical. And, it, and wouldn't you say, too, that it, uh, I think you've already said it, that they're providing uh, a service to to make sure working our process and, and um, doing it right. That's right. Absolutely. And uh, I know that we're about out of time here tonight. There is one one more question from the webcast that seems like it really ties into this conversation. And it just, um, if if you don't mind, if we we could go ahead and field that um, briefly, Sunny. It's it's from Linda, and she's asking, um, there are concerns that the process program practice or activities around restorative justice are showing more concern for offenders um, more than the victims and community. And what would be your response to that briefly? If I understand it correctly, uh, some restorative justice programs are showing more empathy for the offender than the victim. Is that what the question is? Right, that there's the perception perhaps or in perhaps yeah, I, and and some of that perception there's kernels of truth to that, and that's why it's it's you know you need that advisory you know one of the, one thing that we had for many many years and still do is a, a a solid advisory committee that keeps you know keeps us honest because there's a liability with institutionalization where you can become cynical and sloppy and um, and forgetting the the core fundamental values and principles. So I know there's there's sometimes a perception of it, and I just it's up to us to continue to not only educate people about what this is, but put our money where our mouth is and make sure that there are if equal amount of services. In RSVP, we have a very vibrant survivor restoration component of RSVP where we provide practical and emotional support to survivors of the RSVP um, participants. And we provide those, that type of service from empowerment groups to direct uh, and practical support from helping with moving, helping with dental work, um, referring to therapy. And we have a survivor impact class where once a week we have survivors coming in to share what you know the impact, the far-reaching effect on 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 um, their victimization. So we have. You know, it, I, I don't know if it's 50-50, but, you know, you, we have to put our emotional money as well as practic- uh, literal money where our mouth is and by providing the service to the victims as, as much as we do for those who have harmed. Mm-hmm. Well, Sunny, um, in, in coming towards closing here, just uh, any events or upcoming things that you'd like to share for, for those maybe directly in the Bay Area, Northern California, or anything that you might be doing um, that, that you want to just highlight for our participants tonight? Um, there's n- I'm, what I'm, I'm doing right now, I'm working with our probation office, um, uh, working um, with trying to integrate um, post-release programs there for folks, and um, I'm working with our Five Keys Charter School. We started a charter high school in 2003 for justice and you know, criminal justice-involved students and victims as well in the community. Those who have never got their high school diploma, we actually it's an actual public high school called Five Keys. Um, so I'm I'm very busy doing that. I 
to do keynotes here and there too. Just uh, finished one uh, in Dallas, Texas, which was extremely uh, encouraging. Never did I think Dallas, Texas would invite me, but they sure did, and it was fantastic. And um, um, I find out more. A, key. Go ahead. I, I, I'm wanna, sorry? I want to. How, how do we find out more about Five Keys? Okay, fivekeyscharterschool.org. You, you can look it on your uh, your search engine, and um, we have a website called Five Keys Charter School and right. .org. And um, and um, you know, there's numerous uh, places in the Bay Area and across the country. There's hundreds now, and uh, anyone who wants to get involved, the more the merrier. And uh, it's it's not for everybody, but it's really very gratifying work. And I'd also like to point out that, um, again, if you haven't already gone to the Resolve to Stop the Violence Project website, it's a powerful site. I'm looking right now at the Resolve to Stop the Violence SF.org backslash news page, um, recommending that. There's, there's some video resources there. Uh, Resolve to Stop the Violence Project, uh, honored at Harvard University Q&A with Sheriff Hennessy and Sonny Schwartz, and many other resources there to tap into, as well as uh, Sonny's own website, which also features some words and praise and such about the book, Dreams from the Monster Factory. If you haven't checked out this book, I highly encourage and recommend that you do. Pat the word along, and Sonny, on behalf of the Peace Alliance tonight, we, we've just been greatly honored to have you with us. Um, we'll be posting this conversation and dialogue at Restorative Justices on the Rise website, which is dopeace.us. Click on Restorative Justice, access to all the archives of this series. Next week, we have the honor as well of speaking with Nobel nominee Kathy Kelly. So on behalf of the Peace Alliance, thank you so much, Sunny and everyone who is participating. See you next week and in the near future. Good night, all. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Good night.